Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. We have a very interesting guest, uh, Doray Honovan, who is 70 years old, but has been traveling around the world and learning a bunch of languages. She's definitely giving me a run for my money. And uh, her passion is infectious. She covers multiple different things about her own experience traveling, her own language learning methods, what her thoughts on language maintenance are, and especially her opinion on discipline and how that pays off in the long run. So we're going to go into that and more in today's episode. So check it out. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 75. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Welcome, everyone, to the Language Hacking Podcast. My name is Elizabeth Bruckner, and I'm with Benny Lewis of Fluent in Three Months, the founder of Fluent in Three Months. And today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Doray Hunovan, a pillar in the Fluent in Three Months Challenge. Doray speaks several languages, which we will talk about today, has traveled the world, which we will also talk about today. Welcome, Doray. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So let, let's kick it off very simply by you giving us your story. Like, how did you get into languages? I traveled with my family uh, to Mexico when I was from, you know, from the age of nine on up until I was independent. And we would go all the way from Tijuana down to Guatemala camping. And we had a, a camper and we also had an ice chest. Every day we had to get ice. And so my father would say, donde si vende yelo, and no one could understand him. And so he asked me to try. So I went up to a man and said, donde si vende yelo, yelo. And then I went, yelo. And he said, oh, donde se vende yelo. And I said, donde se vende yelo. And he got really excited and he got me right to where they sold ice and I got a huge block of it. And I, I think I was 11 and I, I just felt the connection and it made me happy. And I was, I just became stuck right there on languages. And then after that, uh, I learned Spanish in middle school and then high school for four years. And after I learned Spanish, I thought, well, I'm really good at Spanish. I can communicate well. And I took a course on Spanish-American literature. I think I'll start French. And I did that when I was still in the States. Then I moved to live in London, where I stayed for about seven years. With French, I got really happy and fluent. And I could just zip over to Paris easily or other parts of France. And so then I did German and Italian. Then I thought, oh, I need to change from London. So I decided to go to Egypt and teach English and move from country to country. The moving from country to country didn't work, but I did get a, a job in Cairo. So I did Egyptian Arabic and modern standard Arabic there. After that, I moved back to the States. And I think the, the next language was Polish. From Polish, I went to Chinese briefly and then had a hiatus of learning languages. Oh, I, oh, by the way, I also went to Japan. After Spanish, there was Japanese because I lived in Japan for two years to study how to teach the violin. So that was really important. I ended up learning Portuguese and Thai and another big Sabbat Chinese. It's 10 altogether, so I might be missing one. So that's basically the story. 
You are a repeat challenger. You're someone that I actually learn from and many challengers learn from in the Fluent in Three Months Challenge. And I find that challengers will often send me as a coach, they'll send me private messages with questions. And I'm always like, send it to the main community because we have folks like Dore here who have experience, who have been learning languages for years and years and understand the ups and downs. So before we get into some of your tips and tricks, because you have a lot in your up your sleeve, you really do. And you tend to shift, change them up a lot. So I think it's why you stay so young and, and vibrant because you're constantly moving and changing. But here's my question for you. Your parents were not language learners. How did they help you to develop that love of languages? I mean, I understand, I'm guessing they gave you music lessons. Did they also reinforce your love for languages or how did you find a way to develop that as a child? I wasn't really that young. I, when I was really studying Spanish, I was in high school. So four years of high school, but it wasn't really, it was just a course I took in school and my parents didn't really think about it at all. I really got motivated when I found that I personally could make the connections. So it didn't really have much to do with my parents, but the music, but studying the violin and teaching it for 45 years helped a great deal, but not in the way that people usually think vaguely, oh, you play the violin, that's why you're good at languages. It wasn't that at all. The violin practice every day. I would go upstairs, go into the practice room and practice for two hours, everything that I needed to do. And my reward for all that practice was lunch. And that's where I learned the discipline of doing things every single day and in an organized fashion so that I could go out on stage and perform or go into the studio and teach. And that was so invaluable for language learning. It's my key asset. And as my financial advisor once told me, he said, Dore, you're really talented at languages. And I said, no, I'm just disciplined. And he said, Dore, you don't get it. That is the talent, discipline. Absolutely. And like, as you, as you were saying, you've been all over the place and languages have been such a big part of your life. So I'm curious to hear, like, what inspired you to join the challenge? Because generally, when people join the Fluent in Three Months Challenge, it's for a lot of people, it's to it's their first experience truly getting into language learning. So what inspired you to join? I just thought it would be fun to learn with other people. The, all of the descriptions, I, I got a copy of your book, Benny, and then there was publicity for the challenges. And I decided, I remember exactly where I was. I was sitting at my desk in Chiang Mai in the north of Thailand thinking, you know, I really should do this challenge. It seems like a really fun way to do Thai. And since then, you have created these like offset communities. So you've got your language learning community at Fluent and Fluent Challenge, where it's kind of like a big family. We all know each other. We're always talking about the next language we're going to do, what we're doing next. And it's beautiful. But you then take it and do in-person communities. For example, in Thai, you visited with one of our staff members and you had friends in Thai and you would you would make a point of yeah, she's looking up to the sky, like daydreaming about Thai for those that are listening, because I would be too. And she had friends and she was laughing and she would go do, you know, hang out, you would hang out with street vendors. And now you have taken a new in-person language community in Mexico. Can you tell me how you developed that community and what it looks like? Because it's, it's more, it's more family than community. How did that come about? 
I actually don't have language learning communities with other language learners. For me, the passion and love I have for every single language is for connection with other people and for culture. Every word in every language I have studied is a connection, an emotional, intellectual, spiritual connection with another world of being. I mean, we're all human beings, but we're so different. And I don't know if it occurs to other people how different others are. I mean, even another American is completely different, another planet from me, but another add culture onto that. And it's an absolutely fascinating world for me. I'm hypnotized by it. And so living in Mexico, um, I've lived in other places, but this is serious. It's my base. I, I don't have too many Mexican friends, maybe five or so, but they are really good friends. We sit for two hours. We spill our guts to each other. We know each other really, really, really well. And when I was in other countries, like in Egypt, for example, it was the same kind of thing. When I met someone and they we, we made a connection with a, a family, I would go to their homes and they would give me food and we would just talk. And that's why having a big vocabulary and really good understanding of grammar is, is absolutely invo invaluable because with the ability to speak and be understood, I, you know, I'm all, in Mexico, I'm always a gringa, you know, I'm always a foreigner, but there's a certain amount of trust that builds up with language ability. And then even people I just know casually on the street, they will tell me things. People tell me things and I like to listen and I just, oh, really? They tell me about Mexican Independence Day and any, any kind of cultural piece of information is a nugget for me and I put it in my head and I remember it and it, it makes me alive. It feeds my soul. <laughs> That's how I would talk about my language learning community. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I'm I'm a similar mindset to you that the the passion for me is truly that connection with people, and that's driven my entire language learning story. But even so, it's you still have to have some form of a, a method when you're getting into learning the language uh, beyond just being passionate about it. So, what is your method, and how has that evolved over the years? I have a tried and true method that I absolutely love. And it's, it started off, I would always get a language learning course, like Linguaphone in the UK. And in the US, my, my main formula is to have a, like a, a college level textbook and someone who can make recordings for me. Now, I am 70 years old. I was born in 1951. There was not very much good technology. I mean, there wasn't even a Walkman or, <laughs> I mean, a cassette tape recorder was invented way late after I was studying. So the high, high level of language teaching from a university textbook really gave me the nuts and bolts and the skeleton of what I needed to hang my language clothes on, i.e. words and sentences and phrases. So I would take a college textbook and really listen to the dialogue and learn it. And, and I would do what Luca Lampariello does with bidirectional translation, even back when I was in my 20s and learning Italian, or I was in my 30s. 
but I heard this beautiful recording and I would write the English and then I would look at the English and spit out the, the Italian, buongiorno, come vai? And it would be, come va? Oh, I made a mistake. And that's how I would memorize, 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 memorize grammatical um, sentences that were like model sentences and words, phrases, everything. So that's the, that's the, the formula. And it got better, of course, with technology like iPhones. And, oh, it's absolutely fantastic, the different applications and uh, dictionaries, talking dictionaries, Reverso. I just, I use everything, Google Translate. Not so much the entertainment things. I don't need entertainment when I study. I just need good materials and I'm off and running. So I notice when you're doing your video speaking, either your target language or speaking with a native speaker, each Doray video, depending on the target language, is a different Doray. So you actually pick up the body language, um, you're a little more flirty in some languages. You're a little more stoic in other languages when you're speaking. Are you picking that up naturally or like, or are you intent on I'm going to tilt my head a certain way when I speak Thai as opposed to when I'm speaking in Spanish? I, I think it's just sort of natural mimicry. Like I kept hearing an expression in Spanish, but I would just, I would hear it and then I'd start to not really know what it meant. Oh, I know it goes, por poco, por poco. Por poco, they'd say. And, you know, what does that it literally means for a little bit? But, but it also means almost. It means, oh, dude, it's just something that's stuck in. And so I began to say, por poco, when I was speaking. And, and, and then Thai, of course, there's so much body language that's different. And I think the more I do it, the more comfortable people feel. Like I remember being in, a in taxi cabs in Cairo and I'd always say something, inshallah, like, which means if God wills it. And I'm not Muslim, but everybody said, oh, I'll go there, inshallah. And so I would say it. And I'd get out of the taxi and the taxi driver would say, no, don't pay, don't pay. Because he thought I was Muslim. <laughs> that was just things that happen. Benny, that reminds me of your time in Egypt. Um, you actually wrote an article about it. Can you talk a little bit about it? Because I think this goes hand in hand with what Doray is saying. You went there initially wearing Western clothes and then you switched. And what happened when you started switching? Because I think these are things that non-polyglots or polyglot wannabes don't know about these, these little, these little tricks and tips. So thank you, Dory, for bringing that up. Yeah, this is why I think I wrote an entire chapter about justice in my book that uh, external to learning the language features themselves. If you can learn the body language and even the kind of clothing people wear, then that can make a world of difference. And when I went to Cairo, I had been studying Egyptian Arabic in Brazil for several months. And at first I was uh, a little disappointed because everyone was speaking to me in English and I was looking forward to getting to use my Arabic. But I realized it's because I looked like an obvious uh, tourist. And even, you know, I, I didn't have a Bermuda shirt and a, a camera around my neck, but I still looked like a foreigner. And so I just sat down in at a cafe and I looked at all of the uh, men around my age as they were passing. And I just tried to see how do they walk and how do what kind of body language do they have when they talk to other people? 
and even what kind of uh, grooming style do they have? And I, I grew out a, mu- a mustache. I'd never grown a mustache before that. And I did that just to blend in. And obviously I didn't instantly overnight look like an Egyptian. I just looked a lot less like a foreigner. And that was one of the most important changes I made that it made them start switching to using Arabic with me all the time. Um, or reply to my Arabic, even though obviously I was making mistakes, I had an accent. So they knew I was a foreigner, but it plays into some form of their subconscious mind of planting that extra seed that, you know, this person isn't as much of a foreigner. So maybe I can use my language with them. So that was definitely my experience as well when I went to places like Egypt. And you've, you've traveled quite a lot. I mean, you'll give me a run for my money and I've done uh, quite a lot of world travels. So how does how does that work? Like, do you uh, just save up the money, or like, do because that's for a lot of people the practical aspect of how can I have all of these three months stays in another country uh, can really stress them out. And you've found a way to make this work. Well, obviously now I'm retired for about six years, but before that and before the pandemic, I saved like crazy. I mean, I I really had to travel. So I had, you know, here comes the discipline word again. I was disciplined in my savings. So I had categories for saving itself, like for long-term savings after the age of 40, and then saving for things that I wanted. And the main thing that I wanted was travel. And I was self-employed. That also helped a great deal because I could set how much I charged for my violin lessons. That's basically how I did it. And so I always had money for the trips. And I really lived on the cheap. I mean, for me, uh, uh, all my life, except for maybe recently, a little bit of comfort has come in. But a a hotel or a bed and breakfast or any place was a place to sleep. And that's it. If I wanted to study, I went to a coffee shop. So I just got really, really inexpensive places. So, you know, just being very uh, much a tight wad. And in, in the States, when I was living there, I just found everything for free, like concerts and many things were free. And I never went out to eat. I always cooked, except on special occasions. Too much discipline, maybe. My sister thinks I really deny myself, but <laughs> I don't. I have fun. You visited over 29 countries. I don't think that's called um, denying yourself. I think that's more being aligned with what is true to you. You know, my husband and I, we love to travel. So we don't have a gigantic house. Most Americans, I believe we have houses that are just way too big. They're not necessary. You don't need all that space. And we're, you know, we're mortgage heavy in America. We do a lot of work hard come home dead, watch TV, eat sugar, drink alcohol, rinse and repeat. That is no way to live. So, but it it goes back to this idea of discipline because for me, I have to be really careful. I was raised by a military father. So the word discipline, I'm always like, well, gotta be careful because I can go the opposite way and be way too disciplined. But there is this idea of discipline, which gives you the the true gratification that you desire. So in the Western world, I'm speaking as an American, so I don't know about everyone else, but we have this idea of instant gratification, get online, buy it right now, it's shipped to you tomorrow. That is not language learning. And that connection that you get when you go on a trip and you're able to grow out a mustache, I cannot grow out my mustache, but I have to work on when I go to visit Egypt doing something different, but, you know, getting into the culture, um, making true connection, that is not instant gratification. Even true, wonderful relationships do not develop 
with instant gratification. So what I see you saying is you also have a desire for instant gratification. All human beings do. You use discipline and that discipline gets you true gratification because you can go to a country and make five. I mean, having a circle of five friends in Mexico that are really close, that's something that many people in their native language don't have. And then that gratification, those little bits create more motivation for discipline. So what I'd like to ask you is because now discipline is your muscle. It's just what you do. Do you now sit down for two hours a day and study Spanish? And what is, what does your day look like? And how is language learning sprinkled into that day? Because I think discipline and routine are hand in hand too. Well, before I answer that question, I just have to say, once somebody said, Dora, what is your purpose in life? And I said, my purpose in life is to have fun. I said, I know that sounds superficial. And she said, no, no, it doesn't sound superficial. It sounds like a very spiritual way to want to live your life. And so I remembered that. And so the, the discipline is in order to have fun. And, and so it's not discipline that where I'm saying, oh, I don't feel like it today. Every day I feel like it. I feel I, and, and it was the same with the violin. It was the same to go to teach every day. I thought, oh, I can't wait to go to work. I'm tired of studying now. I think it's time to go to work in the morning after I, I have breakfast and I read the news and then I sit down and I study Chinese first because that's hard. And, uh, and I, and it's so complicated what I'm doing because I do, I, I have two basic things that I do when I study. One is the organized textbook learning where someone who knows how the language works has put it down in a book so that I can also learn how the language works. And then the second is what a friend from Italy that I met in Cairo said, the bar room approach. Now, I do not like bars. I've never gone to bars, but I like the approach and I have a, a notebook with all of my words and my expressions. I'm taught, I have a conversation. I said, oh, gee, I really need to know how to say, um, scrape the walls because that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm helping to renovate a friend's uh, apartment. And so we, they're made of cement. So I have to scrape the walls. That's, that's resanar, resanar. And then I have to put a sealant on that's, Sayar. I need these words because I, heaven knows I'm now an expert on cement. And, and so, and there are other many, many, many other topics, which I love to talk about. So those go in my personal notebook. And that's my most important asset. Once I'm, you know, I've got the discipline out of the way, then I go to the notebook and I spend about 30 minutes a day. Look at the English, spit out the Chinese, look at the English, spit out the Chinese. And then in the afternoon for Spanish, I'm only studying two languages at the moment because I don't really believe in language maintenance. And I can talk about that later. But in Spanish, I'm in the process of starting a literature circle. Like I had that in France for two, two or three years. We cho chose books to read and we jumped. We jumped through history. We did Molière and then we did uh, Raymond Quenu, who is uh, very modern and Molière very, you know, from the 1600s. And so we found a leader who has been producing cultural programming uh, in on Mexican national TV 
since 2006, who's very excited about being the leader of our literature circle, Mexican literature, all in Spanish, reading, all in Spanish, talking. He'll give a little lecture to get us started. Then we'll have a roundtable. And our pilot meeting is going to be on the 5th of October. So uh, our first book that the founding members are reading, there are four of us, is a book by um, by Octavio Paz called uh, El Laberinto de la Soledad, which is um, the labyrinth of solitude. It's taught everywhere all over the world as an exploration of Mexican character. And that we thought would be a good way to learn about Mexicans through literature, which is the purpose of the circle, how to learn about Mexico and Mexicans through their literature, because I love literature. You can clearly see that passion in your discipline and it's something that you've had throughout your life. Um, I really appreciate that because that that does, like you said, you, you have a purpose at the end of it. Have you run into days where maybe your motivation is a little lower? And if so, how do you how do you inject that discipline into your life? Because this is something a lot of people listening would love to have. They would love to have this level of discipline where they can dive into a hard language like Chinese early in their day but they're just not feeling that motivation. And they know if they were able to make these little short-term sacrifices, it would make their life so much richer. So when you're having more difficult days, what do you do to get that motivation back to be more disciplined? I have what I, I call, this is what I call to my friends, is the Dore Hanavan reward system. Um, I bribe myself with a reward. If you, I will not... I say, I, I cannot get off of this sofa. I actually study on the sofa um, until I have done 30 minutes of vocabulary review. And my reward will be, and they're very simple, a snack or tea. Now, you know, I, I, I can't really give myself things because I don't need anything. And, but I do need a snack and I need lunch. And sometimes it's more elaborate, like I'm doing the HSK system for Chinese, which is six levels of, of learning. And I'm, I try to do a lesson a week, and there's a lot to do in that lesson. It's a little bit more complicated for the reward. But the reward was that I bought all the books up to level six, all of them. And I also give myself a really fabulous italki teacher. I guess everyone has to be inventive and creative about finding what they would like to have as a reward. But then I'm sitting there and then the 30 minutes is over and I get some peanuts and a cup of tea and there we are done. You are old school minimalist. So there's a new trendy term coming out, minimalist. And you can see all these, these little bloggers. They're so cute. They're like 20 and they're like, I've been meditating two minutes a week for two weeks. And let me tell you how my life has changed. And I'm like two it's okay. Yay. Good. It's a beginning, but you are actually living that minimalist spiritual lifestyle, which is, I don't need a lot because I'm giving myself, I'm giving my, my spirit what it needs. So it's not constantly hungry. That's beautiful. And if the listeners could see when you, Dory, speak about languages and travel, it's act, you actually light up. It's really beautiful to see. And this is what is the, uh, I want to say addictive, but in a more positive way, the draw to my language learning community to see people light up when they talk about this. You know, I don't know how many times the listeners or either of you have been at a cocktail party and everybody looks like they're about to fall asleep and they just 
I do this for my job. I don't want to talk about your job. Like if you want to, if you want me to be interested, I want to hear something that enlivens you, that wakes you up. And I really believe that travel and your way of life has managed to do that for you, this language learning. So you really tickled my curiosity when you mentioned no language maintenance. And I think that'll probably be my last question. What does this mean? You don't maintain languages. Well, I, I tried it because during the pan pandemic, I lived with my sister and brother-in-law and I decided to do a polyglot challenge to revive Japanese, Italian and French. And I was doing Thai as well. So I had these four languages. And I, the first, even before the challenge th started, I couldn't speak a word of Italian. I knew it was there. Um, and my Japanese was was a little bit more fluent, but it was hard. And so I discovered that within a week of listening to people, getting a teacher, which motivated me to to do some kind of study, I just jumped into it. And when I did that, when I had the, a lesson with my Japanese teacher, with my Italian teacher, um, I would say, oh, I used to know this word. What is it? And they would give it to me. And so then I would study it and then more words would come back. And so it was within three weeks I could I could speak. I could have my I could have a conversation with my three teachers. And of course, Thai, I was still working on. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to put all of my heart and soul into learning how to live in Mexico and be a, a resident. I have a permanent resident card. It's like, and I'm so happy to have that. And, but it's trickier than one thinks to live in a country. And so I'm spending my time and attention doing that. And also with the Chinese, I'm putting in the time and effort because I hope to see my friends in Taiwan again. And, um, but um, I know that if I join another polyglot challenge, it within, <laughs> and I do think they're a lot of fun. They do take a, some organization, but they're fun, 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 fun. I can get even Egyptian Arabic back, which seems, and Polish, which seem very much asleep. So as you know, this is the, the language hacking podcast. So one question we always love to ask our guests whenever they come on is what's your definition of language hacking? I think I've said most of it already. It's getting good materials of a high level. I don't like, not with cartoons in it, but a high level textbook or learning materials and memorize everything. Just memorize everything. It's going to be useful. Um, maybe not some words, but the grammar for sure. And then have my own private notebook of words and expressions, which I work with every single day to just revive my memory. And then go out and talk to people, just go out. And, but I always have a question to ask, like what breed of dog is that? It doesn't have any hair in it. It's, it's, what is it? And they said, oh, it's a Mexican breed. And of course I've forgotten the name because I didn't write it in my special notebook, but that's language hacks, hacking, the materials, the private notebook and going out and asking questions and just being curious. That's how I do it. And what is your future in languages going to look like? Because like you said, you may start maintaining the likes of your Egyptian Arabic and other languages again. Where do you hope to take these? I don't know. It's a big question. I don't even ask myself because I'm I'm living so much in the present. I'm just I'm just doing not not I'm not going to say I'm doing Mexico. I am in Oaxaca, which is this 
capital of the state of Oaxaca. I'm doing Oaxaca right now, but there are 16 indigenous languages surrounding me, and there are 3 million Nahuatl speakers, which is was um, in Mexico City. So who knows? Um, there was a recent language hacking podcast with someone who had a Nahuatl school. I might be joining that, but I don't really know what my future is in language learning. Just to have fun. And that's good. Have fun. Exactly. Uh, you're leaving it open to a world of possibilities. So this is very interesting. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. I'm sure people find it very inspirational and I hope they'll uh, take a leaf out of your book and go ahead and have some fun with their own languages. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a great honor and a lot of fun. Thanks so much. So until the next time, we'll wish everybody listening a very happy language learning. Happy language learning. Bye-bye. Happy language learning. So at the end of these episodes, we love to come back to it and share one another's takeaways. So uh, Elizabeth, what was your takeaway from this episode? Oh my gosh, I'm going to only pick two because really there were so many gems throughout it. The first is when she thinks about approaching a stranger in her target language, she has a specific question in mind before she goes up to that person. And I think it's okay to prep. People think they need to go right in and just off the top of their head. No, no, no. You can prep a little and have some set questions that will create a conversation. And the second thing that really stuck out for me was she chooses discipline with the goal of having fun in life. So she chooses discipline over instant gratification. And what that ends up giving her in the long run is true gratification and this idea of lightness and joy, because that is really one of the most spiritual endeavors you could have is just to be joyful in this, in this lifetime. Absolutely. And that, that would be my same takeaway, the uh, thoughts she had on discipline, uh, because like she said, her, her sister might look at her and think, you know, you're too disciplined. But as we talk to her, like she's so lighthearted, she clearly enjoys her life. And this amount of discipline makes it possible for her to say, my purpose in life is to have fun. And I think for so many of us, when we imagine somebody whose purpose is to have fun, we do imagine someone who's kind of lazy and that, you know, they don't really have any, any discipline to them. And I love that this is a mixture of both, that she makes short-term sacrifices. Like she spends a lot less money on things. She's okay with staying in a cheaper accommodation when she travels. So she makes these short-term disciplined sacrifices and that makes her entire life richer as a result. And I think this can be very important to us that like you can still decide my goal in life is to have fun and incorporate discipline into that. And you have such richer fun if you're doing things like putting that time into learning a language so you could maybe travel and experience a different culture and having a little bit less creature comforts that aren't that big a deal, really, just so that you have the extra money to be able to afford to have these big adventures. So that would be my main takeaway from what she said, like yourself. So that was very interesting. And if you guys enjoyed uh, listening to today's podcast, make sure to leave us a review at languagehacking.com slash review. We appreciate every single one that you share with us. And um, until the next time, I will wish everybody very happy language learning. Happy language learning.
We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis, Shannon Kennedy, and Elizabeth Bruckner, and produced by Katie Pascoe, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. Theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening and happy language learning.